Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show where we talk about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt. Uh, we have a website at SequelCast.com. And if you go to Facebook and look up SequelCast, we have a lot of stuff on there as well. And if you go to SequelCast.com uh, and, and you like our show and stuff, you can click on one of our many Amazon links next time you want to buy from Amazon. You don't have, even have to buy what the link is for. And uh, a little bit of that goes to us, or you can donate to us via PayPal. Because uh, podcasting ain't free. It's a pretty cheap hobby, but I like to break even or something. I don't know. Get myself an extra cupcake. How am I going to fill the that I bought with my webcomic money? That's right. That's right. I need podcast money. Yeah, podcast money and webcomic money. That's all you need, really. Uh, that's <laughs> That series you just heard is a Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And uh, we're in the middle of looking at the series of Die Hard films starring Bruce Willis. This one is called Die Hard 2. Uh, I actually thought Die Harder was part of the title, but it just was used so heavily in the promotion, and it's even listed as part of the title on the box. But in the movie credits, it simply says Die Hard 2. Um, like the original Netflix, Die Harder as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, Die Hard 2 is directed by Rennie Harlan, who some of you might know better for uh, Stallone movie uh, Cliffhanger. And he did Cutthroat Island, Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, an early American film he did was Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which I think is one of the better one of those movies. Um, uh, this was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, who was one of the writers in the first one, and Doug Richardson. And uh, also, like the original Die Hard, it was based on a book that had nothing to do with the John McClane character. In this case, it's called uh, a, bi- a book called 58 Minutes by Walter Wager. Wager. And uh, it stars Bruce Willis, again, Bonnie Bedelia, again, Reginald Bell Johnson, again. But uh, William Sadler is the bad guy this time. And you have a really uh, amusing Dennis Franz as a kind of cop in here. Uh, so, yeah, it, this came out in 1990, and uh, on a budget of $70 million, grossed a worldwide box office of $240 million. So, it was a big hit at the time. Thrasher? Oh, uh, oh. oh, I see. I thought there was some more, some more thoughts on that. Yeah, I... Uh, I had not seen this movie until last night. I watched it last night with my girlfriend, okay. and I watched it again first thing this morning, j- just because I I felt it needed a second viewing. Mm. And you know, now I've had that second viewing. This is one of those I saw as a kid on video shortly after seeing the first one. Um, out of all the Die Hard movies, it's a tie, I guess, between Die Hard 2 and uh, the fourth one called Live Free or Die Hard or Die Hard 4.0, uh, depending on where you live, um, <laughs> that people seem to hate the most. And uh, watching it again, I, I don't think Die Hard 2, uh, Die Harder, is uh, that bad, but it certainly comes from the uh, school of filmmaking where 
Well, in the first movie, if he uh, used a pistol, in the sequel, he's going to use a super-duper pistol. If 100 people died in an explosion in the first movie, we're going to kill 300 people in a plane in the second one. It's a bigger scale. Yeah, yeah, I, um, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not a bad movie, but I, I don't find it to be quite that good. It, it tries so hard to top the first movie that it really loses sight of everything that made the first movie great. You know, one thing I think about the first movie that works so well is location, 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 as they say. And in the first one, the Nakatomi, what, Plaza, I think it was called? Yes, the big Nakatomi Plaza Tower. Yeah. And so it was during a holiday party. You had a lot of, like, a, a lot of the action in the movie was in shadows. There was a lot of suspense. Die Hard 2, it's in an airport. And you do have a lot of civilians in an airport, but a lot of scenes are in, you know, broad, uh, if not daylight, they're in, you know, this fluorescent bathed, Thing, you know, uh, look to everything. So I don't think it's as suspenseful. And uh, in addition, you look at the directing styles of uh, John McTiernan, who directed the first film, and he actually he also comes back to direct a Die Hard Three, a Die Hard with a Vengeance. But um, you look at how it's in the shadows; it's more mysterious. There's a lot of very static shots. Die Hard Two, Rennie Harlan, the director in this one, uh, uses a lot more camera movement in shots. You know, he walks into a room and you see the camera kind of first person perspective kind of noodling around. Yeah. Yeah, how do you, how, do you think this movie, because this movie did t- does take place in the 1990s. It does. Do you think this movie dates itself? Because the original Die Hard, I do feel, is in its own way very timeless. Well, I think even though this was made in 1990, the early 90s, you could call Die Hard 2 as an example of a classic 90s sort of movie when action movies got a bigger budget. And they could explode things real good and really big. <laughs> and everything, like, I think of the lighting in 90s movies and just, like, a lot of, like, yellow light on things. A lot of shininess. You know, in a lot of 80s movies, and Die Hard is an example of this, uh, or action films at least, are filmed in, like, a lot of dark areas with a lot of red and blue lighting. It's a bit more moody. And in 90s films, a lot of things are just bathed in fluorescent light. I well, especially if it's a Joel Schumacher '90s movie. Well, that's a separate issue, but yeah, and this one's yeah. not Joel Schumacher, but right. I mean, so and, and, you know, like the first film, also it takes place on uh, like Christmas, Christmas Eve, Eve. and uh, this was actually partially filmed at the uh, Dulles International Airport, um, right outside of Washington D.C. I used to live in Centerville, Virginia, which is pretty close to this airport. And well, yeah, it's I very that airport. Yeah, it's a very distinctive look at the airport. Um, I haven't been to it in over 15 years, but I imagine it still has a distinctive look to it from the outside. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although I kind of feel cheated. They never really give you a good establishing shot of the airport because it is a gorgeous-looking airport. Yeah, that's also the case as well. Um, So, I mean, what do you think of the – do you think a setting of an airport is interesting at all? Well, I think I think it I I think definitely it, it is interesting. I think uh, I think the, the I think using the airport is a very good choice. However, I setting it on another Christmas Eve I think is a very bad choice. It just reminds you of the first one, and uh... well, that and it leads to a lot of bad humor because both McLean and his wife make frequent jokes about how many times can this happen to the same person. 
Yeah, and the jokes are more cutesy this time around. A lot of them. Well, they're more constant. It's like he's yes. trying to be an yeah. action movie hero. He's not just a guy in a stressful situation who every now and then says something witty. She says, hey, my badge went to Cleveland. What sets off the metal detector first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brain? Yeah. Which doesn't make sense, because unless you're eating ferrous metal, your feces <laughs> aren't going to show up on a metal detector. He maybe should have made a reference to, to dead weight or something like that. I think this is what he was trying for. Or the but... loose screw, the loose screw in your brain. That could set off a metal detector. Exactly, yeah. You, see, you, you should have wrote Die Hard 2, but then you would have been, like, what, eight years old or something? Ten years old? I don't know. I would have given it a shot. Yeah, I think anyone could. Uh, I mean, and I look at this film, and, you know, it's it's just so difficult to come out of the shadow of the original picture. And it doesn't help when... Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, I think, is one of the top action movie villains of all time. Because it's kind of fun to watch. And William Sadler as... Uh, oh, what's the dude's name? William Sadler is Colonel Stewart, the sort of main head of the terrorist group in this movie. And, you know, he's like a different sort of villain in that he's all business, he's cold, he's ruthless. And he can be kind of menacing. But there's often such distance in this movie between the good guys and the bad guys. They're either on a separate airplane or holed up in a church, like way outside the airport. There's not a whole lot of one-on-one confrontation. Yeah, and you don't get too much, like, because that was another thing, you know, Hans Gruber and, and McLean did have a back and forth. You know, when, when eventually McLean got access to a walkie-talkie, we don't get any of that back and forth in this movie. Movie. The, the one time he gets access to a walkie-talkie, it's encrypted and nobody knows the code, so he can't go back and forth. Right, yeah, I mean, that's also interesting. Uh, and you look at, you know, a big thing about John McClane is everyone's against him. but Despite the fact that he, he's a hero. He's a hero two yeah. years ago. <laughs> Right. No one recognizes him, and when they do recognize him, they're like, "Oh, big deal!" Well, I you think you know this because even though he's, a, well, I mean, even though the character of John McClane is originally it was a New York City cop, he moved to California and was a California cop. Now he's back on the East Coast. There's a whole yeah. East Coast West Coast thing sort of going on, but um, even like the first film, you have like a reporter in this movie, right? Who? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, technically you have two. You have a, a woman who works with a Washington uh, news agency, and then you have uh, returning William Atherton as Richard Thornburg, who ha- just so happens to be on the same airplane <laughs> as McLean's wife, although it's never exactly explained why. And it's also worth mentioning the whole reason uh, John McLean is at the airport is he's just waiting for his wife to come. Yeah, he's there to pick her up. They're having they're having a Christmas with some relatives that live in the area, and for whatever reason, McLean and the kids got there first, and now he's going back to the airport in his mother in law's car to uh, uh, to pick his wife up. And of course, the very first scene is a really good underdog scene because the very first scene is John McLean getting a ticket in uh, in his. Uh, in his mother-in-law's car, which immediately escalates to the car being uh, towed. Although something I gotta, I gotta ask. This is Washington D.C., but I was very confused because, despite the fact that this movie takes place in Dulles Airport, it has a disproportionate number of New York City cops. Well, uh, not just that. I mean, you look uh, 
There's a, a famous blooper, or I guess it's not so famous, they talk about it in the audio commentary that Rennie Harlan gives, but uh, he uses a phone in Dallas Airport, and the phone says Pacific Bell on it. Oh, yeah. Which was the West Coast branch of, back when you had all the Mama Bell companies doing the payphones and stuff. Yeah. Around the country. So that's sort of a mistake there. But no, you're right. I mean, if it would have been a New York City airport, maybe that would have been a bit... Well, it's like all all the all the law enforcement personnel are like stereotypical New York cops. Hey, Merry Christmas! Oh, it's it's really weird. But I like Dennis Franz. Uh, oh I, no, no! I almost Good rather would have had. He's great in this. Yeah, I mean, he really goes. Even though he's you know portly and uh, was on NYPD Blue at the time, I believe, or if not, shortly thereafter. Uh, I think this was just before NYPD Blue. Okay, so maybe just before. Uh, does that make NYPD Blue a spinoff of Die Hard 2? Uh, no, because no. he's not playing Sipowitz. Oh, okay. Although, at the same time, like, seeing, seeing this, this movie, he does do, like, all the... Like, when, when McLean and... Um, uh, when McLean and... Uh, oh, here's here's his name. Uh, Captain uh, Carmine uh, Lorenzo. That's right. Played by Dennis Franz. Whenever... When, when they first start butting heads... Captain Carmine Lorenzo does all the stuff a stereotypical police chief in an action movie does. But he, he has a real great toe-to-toe, and I almost think if he would have been the main villain of the piece, that could have been something very strange indeed. Well, a, well, you know, that's actually something weird. Is like the villain scheme is so elaborate and complicated. It's very it's convoluted. Shot- it's a bit convoluted in the first film, too. But in this one, you have like a, a dictator being extradited. From a, a fictional company called uh, Valverde. Country. Yeah, uh, or country, I'm sorry. Being expedited for trial, I guess, in the United States or something. And uh, he's uh, General Ramon Esperanza, is that character's name. And so there's who, who all. looks just like the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> a bit, or, you know, like Fidel Castro, I think, is the big uh, oh, yeah. obvious choice there. And. Somehow that has to deal with the terrorist stuff, but it's not really clear. And, you know, a lot of the terrorists, or at least the head dude, uh, Colonel Stewart, you know, is a former military guy, and you assume a lot of his henchmen are former military, perhaps. So there's something no, going I, on I, there, they too. They all are. They all are, right. But, um, you know, even though there's a lot more henchmen, a lot more bad guys in the second film, even in the first one you had henchmen, they were all developed a little bit. I'm not going to say any of those... I like, the nerdy black guy is not, like, a rich character from Die Hard 1. And not, not well, but, he, but he has, he has a, a personality. He has a personality. He is. Yeah, and he has a bit of business to do. And, uh, and like, the German guys. Yeah, and, 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 and this film, you know, some of the henchmen are played by uh, famous later actors that later became famous. You have Robert Patrick is O'Reilly, oh, yeah. kind of the right-hand man. But actually, the original actor cast for that part is John Leguizamo, who huh. is a small part, and this is one of the henchmen. And John Leguizamo won the part in auditions. I read the John Leguizamo's memoir he came out with five years ago. But he said when he came there and they saw all the actors standing next to each other, uh, John Leguizamo is so short that they said, well, you can, can't possibly play the number two henchman in the film. They couldn't give him elevator boots or an apple box like they do with Stallone? You know, I guess not. And he was like a real unknown actor at the time, aside from his uh, like comedic one-man Broadway shows. Mm, so, yeah. and... Um, and to his credit, John Leguizamo wasn't crazy about the part, but the money was good. It was early in his career. He was starting out a family. And he said, being a Latino actor, I didn't always want to play, like, terrorist or drug lords or whatever. But um, it was a chance for him to be in a big, you know, 
box office smash movie, even if he's in it very briefly. You barely see him at all. Uh, another famous actor in this is a Cole Meany, uh, better known, you know, from Star Trek, uh, what is it, DS9, where he's the engineer? Or is that Next Generation? Uh, no, no, he played uh, uh, engineer uh, Miles O'Brien in both Next Generation and uh, in Deep Space Nine. Okay. And he was, it was great seeing him, although I wish, I wish they made him a Scotsman instead of a Brit. Yeah, he's a he has a brief part as one of the pilots. Um, so you get all the sort of crap that John McClane runs into with not only the you know airport cops, but with a later like uh, army group that comes in as well. There's all sorts of it's this plot is way too complicated for its own good, wouldn't you well, say? What's- Oh, absolutely. I mean, the 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 one like there's d- crosses, double crosses, layers and layers and layers. But the one thing that's weird with the plan is complicated. What shocks me is that they don't have an inside man. They don't have some plant in air traffic control or something. I kept waiting for one of the uh, airport personnel to turn out to be in on it, but it, but they weren't. They would always. They, I mean, the only people who turn out to be in on it are the uh, military guys. Uh, led by Major Grant, uh, played by John Amos. Yeah, there uh, they turn out to be in on it, but no one else does. Why wouldn't you have an inside man? And I think that in this film, uh, you have a pretty interesting scene, uh, kind of in the middle of the story, where uh, Colonel Stewart hijacks the um, PA system that goes to different airplanes, and it, it's snowy outside at this airport, and uh, Thrasher's throwing stuff on the ground, apparently. Oh, no, no, a uh, cat was trying to crawl in under the door, so I had to dissuade it. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, the the bad guys are trying to distract uh, the airplane that's landing, giving it bad directions, and because it's all snowy, the pilot doesn't know any better. And well, it they, crashes also hack and- the, they also hack aviation control, so it thinks that the ground is about 200 feet under where they where it actually is. Right, so there's a fiery crash full of civilians, like, literally right in front of John McClane, and you see him crying, which seems a bit out of character, but... Um, I, mean, I liked that, though. It made him yeah, seem real and vulnerable. I liked and, that and, John you know, it's, McClane it's, is really broken, that he, or heartbroken that he couldn't save these people. But again, that kind of echoes, on a bigger scale, you know, what happened in the first film, when the SWAT team kind of comes in, and their whole little, like, ATV vehicle gets blown up. And the the cops get shot trying to storm the uh, Nakatomi Plaza in the first film. You know, it's something kind of similar in that in that respect. Uh, what do you think about some of the action in the movie? You have sort of a neat little shootout in the baggage area. Um, the shoot the shootout in the baggage area is is uh, is pretty fun. Uh, although the one thing that keeps the, the two things that keep that kind of like make a, a wobble a bit for me is one. There's this great bit where one of the one of the bad guys is right on top of John McClane. So John McClane grabs a, a generic bottle of hair or can of hairspray out of some luggage and sprays it in the guy's face to like mace him. And I thought that was really clever. But immediately the other bad guy starts shooting at John McClane and shoots the hairspray can, which doesn't explode. It just falls apart. <laughs> Even though the contents are under heavy pressure, and then the way he defeats the guys, the guy gets like jammed into this baggage chute and gets crushed by the conveyor belt. That seemed that seemed pretty gruesome, at least for this early in the film. 
And meanwhile, he's chasing one of the other guys on a bicycle, and he leaps off the bicycle in mid-motion and sort of tackles the guy in the yeah, air, but they still get a, away. Who, so. who is shipping a bicycle? <laughs> or who's, who checked a bicycle? You know, I used to work at a uh, an eBay store, which uh, most of those have gone out of business by now, but they're sort of like, if people didn't know how to sell stuff on eBay, it was, we were sort of like a pawn shop that did it for him. Mm-hmm. And someone wanted to ship a bicycle to uh, his, uh, I guess it was a dad... It was a guy who was divorced from um, his wife, but they had a kid together, and the kid lived with the wife, and he he bought a bicycle and said, well, mail it to my kid. And so to get cheapest shipping possible, we disassembled the entire bicycle and mailed it. Hmm. And and they were fairly upset. They said, why did you break the bicycle? And it's like, oh, we didn't break it. You can't ship a whole bicycle in one big box. Or you can, but you'd be paying, like, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for shipping. Oh, yeah. And... Um, but right, I mean, this is a fully intact bicycle in the back in the baggage area. Yeah, unless somebody in the baggage department was using it to get around quickly. That could be too. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, but but they really make that baggage claim area look really creepy. There's like these there's like these spinning lights in there, and it's really dark, and there's yeah. random blasts of steam for no apparent reason. Yep. Uh, what do you think of the business they give Bonnie Bedelia, uh, Ms. McLean, ho- sorry, Holly Gennaro McLean, in the airport, or um, in the, in, on the airplane? At the beginning, I actually really, really like it, especially uh, especially when uh, when the reporter uh, Richard Thornburg from the first from the first movie shows up. Uh, like I, you know, you do. I, I did. I did care about her, and not just because uh, I cared about her in the first film. And I like that. I like that the people on the air that the uh, that the uh, people on the airplane don't like uh, don't like Thornburg, but they re- they really start to warm up to McLean. Although I said that there's this bit of background where apparently because she punches uh, Thornburg at the end of the first movie, that apparently Thornburg got a restraining order put out against her. But what judge gives a restraining order to John McClane's wife for punching out the world's biggest douchebag? You know, until you mentioned it, I didn't even realize this reporter was from the first movie, even though we just saw Die Hard this past week. Well, I think it, it I wasn't that, that big is. of a it wasn't that big of a character. Well, I think I think that's it because in the They're first movie, he's somewhat of a minor character. His main purpose he serves is to make uh, is to. He gets, you know, he he interviews the McLean children on the air, which of course tits off Alan Rickman um, yeah. to to the relationship between Mc, the the McLeans. But the thing is, is in the first movie, he's just he's just a reporter. He is just doing his job of trying to get a story on the air because he but wants to go the, to investigate Nakatomi Plaza when no one else will. Yeah, yeah. But thing. in the yeah. second movie, he's a complete asshole that does these like scathing exposes that for whatever reason, target a lot of airlines, and nobody likes him. It's really weird. He's had, like... I can only assume he got really, really famous because of his coverage of the Nakatomi story, and then that fame went to his head. Yeah, I would have rather seen someone like uh, Reginald Bill Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell be on the plane with Bonnie Bedelia. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would have liked to have seen her do something a little... I, 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 I kind of wanted to see her do something a little bit heroic, but she doesn't really get any opportunities while she's on the plane. She gets free champagne for having punched an asshole two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> is what it comes down to. Oh, but did you notice um, 
that 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 horrible horrible old woman who sits who's sitting next to Holly McLean, who has a taser that produces a bad special effect that she used on her own dog. Did you happen to notice uh, the magazine that the old woman was reading? Um, no, was it People magazine? Uh, yeah, but it, you see it really quick. But the page she has the magazine open to, uh, on the on the page is a full page ad for Lethal Weapon. I did see. I did notice that. Come to think of it, yeah, yeah. Which I think is also a twentieth century Fox movie. Or no, well, it's Warner Brothers. Damn it. Well, although if you want to talk about Fox promoting its own goods, uh, towards the end of the movie, when they're when they're you know still tax when they're still you know circling in the air on the plane, they they show an episode of the they they turn on they they, they somehow tap they they show an episode of the Simpsons on the plane. It's yeah, the season it, one, episode four. There's no disgrace like home. Specifically, the scene where the Simpsons are strapped to uh, chairs in, in Marvin Monroe's office and are electrocuting each other. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, one of the more famous uh, season one episodes. Um, I think a better season one episode of The Simpsons. Uh, notice we're talking about The Simpsons because Die Hard Two isn't very good. People, uh, <laughs> it is the episode in which uh, Marge has a has a brief affair. Or considers having a full-blown affair, I guess, uh, with the bowling instructor. Oh, yeah, Jacques. Played, uh, Albert Brooks. played by the greatest actor of all time. Albert Brooks, right? Yep. Yep, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, you know, part of the... This movie gets more problematic as it goes on, not only with the plot getting complicated, but the action sometimes goes into the ridiculous. And I realize the first film had pretty ridiculous sequences, in which John McClane ties a, a a hose around his waist, leaps off the side of a building, takes out a pistol, shoots his way through glass, and crashes his way in. Um, and in this, you know, you get the scene at the end where he's on the ejection seat. Yeah, well, yeah, the ejection seat... It's a poor special effect. ...gave me some problems. Like, the special effect of him ejecting and flying towards the camera... That didn't bother me, because that's a pretty no? good effect for its time. Yeah, for the time, sure. The two things that bothered me is, one, when you when like they show the scene from above and you see him flying towards the camera and the ejector seat flipping end over end, ejector seats don't do that. It would just shoot straight up. Yeah, the ejector seat blasts you straight up. There's like a little sort of rocket thing on it. Because if, you, if you're upside down and, that, and the chute deploys, you could get fucked. Uh, oh, yeah, if you're facing downwards and... Yeah, yeah. So, shoot uh, but but the other thing is the reason he ejects, he's in that military plane. The reason he has to eject is all the bad guys start throwing grenades into the into the plane, into the cockpit, and they throw like eight or nine grenades <laughs> over the course over over a lengthy period. These are the slowest detonating grenades. If someone threw this grenade at you and it landed right at your feet. You would have enough time to walk away casually, and you'd be out of the blast radius. It's an excuse to explode yet another plane. And I mean, earlier in the movie, they even explode another plane besides the one with civilians, because they are, uh, some of the guys are undercover, looking like they're mechanics, but they're actually painting flammable liquid on this airplane that happens to blow up in uh, one of the shootouts. I don't remember that scene. It is... Are you sure you're not talking about when they blow up the uh, the auxiliary transmitter? I'm sorry, I think you're right. 
So it's yeah, not I don't an think airplane. they were painting anything. I think they were just rigging it with explosives. They might have had a paintbrush in there. They were looking like they did something else. But you could see it was some kind of explosives, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, the John McClane and some of the airport cops kind of get the get all shot up and stuff. Oh, so. actually, if we can go back to that military plane to get exploded with the grenades, that's the plane that the general is being transported on. And, of course, you know, the general breaks out and kills the pilots, and, and he's... There was only apparently two people on that plane that weren't the general. Um, but in the fight, he shoots out the cockpit window. Does not affect him with the plane at all. There's no decompression. Even though they're like flying in the middle of a blizzard, there's no freezing air or wind. You can talk normally on the radio in the cockpit, despite the fact that you've blown out part of the windshield. Yeah. How about this? Wouldn't the movie might have been more interesting... Let's let's pretend there was no Colonel Stewart in the movie at all, but in, but instead, um, and I'm sure anything I come up with is kind of better than the complicated plot of this movie. Instead, you know this uh, the same dictator uh, General Ramon Esperanza is being extradited to uh, you know uh, American court system, and he overtakes the airplane and with a few of his undercover thugs lands it at this airport in the middle of Christmas, and he breaks out of the plane and starts shooting up people in the airport. Well, I could see. Like, I think you know what that would be a lot less complicated if, if yeah. he had some goons who had infiltrated the airport and were prepping it for his arrival. Yep. Yeah, I think that's good. I think if you, I think removing a layer of complication from this from this plot would vastly streamline the movie. I mean, let's look at it for the, for, for the bad guys to get to make their plan work. They have to infil- They have to take over a church turn the inside of the church into a replica of the control tower for Dulles Airport, then cut the power to the landing systems at Dulles Airport, and then take over the systems at Dulles Airport. (laughs) Like, did it at some point, like, like, if they've already got these military guys involved in the plan, couldn't they have just delayed the actual military escort and sent a fake military escort to just pick the guy up and then vanish into the night? There's so many different things they uh, they could have done. I mean, it really is so complicated with what happens. And it's not, you know, just because a story is complicated doesn't make it good, doesn't make it very satisfying. And especially um, in this kind of an action film, sort of a very... You know, even though in the original Die Hard it was somewhat complicated what the uh, what the bad guys were doing, it was easier, I think, to get a hold of. It wasn't like you had like two or three sets of bad guys doing the same uh, thing. So, oh, you, you know what I did like? What? I liked that we got to see Reginald Val Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell again. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's brief. It's they brief. only really give him one thing to do, but I like that he's true to his character. He eats a lot it was, of it was just good seeing him again. No, no, he's a fun, warm uh, presence, I'd say. And, Although, you know, I do would ask though, because the, the one he shows up is McLean calls him and faxes him some fingerprints from one of the dead, from like from the dead, one of the dead guys from the first shootout. He's not even on duty, and he's like, yeah, he, he's he, he's undercover. I mean, when I watch this movie, I think well, this no, he's is not obviously... undercover. He's in his office. Yeah, well, okay, no, I mean McLean. Oh yeah, he, he pretends he's he pretends uh, to be an officer, an officer yeah. to get those prints and all those things. But you watch this movie, and it, it's very clear it was made before September 11th, uh, 2001, because airport security there used to be a, a joke, you know, not non-existent. 
It used to be you could get in an airplane and uh, not pay for every little bag you brought on. You used to be able to bring a bottle of shampoo on an airplane. You used to be able to... Uh, smoke? Smoke, oh yeah, smoke. Carry a toy gun? <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, you know, these bad guys can get away with their plan, I think, is very dependent. Not that people don't still get away with stuff now, but it was more... It was a higher they potential do, for that. Carry giant scissors on planes multiple times. Yes, enormous scissors. Well, I do a lot of arts and crafts, and I like to pack the stuff, and it, it ends up in my backpack. Completely innocent. <laughs> What's the biggest thing you've had confiscated at an airport recently? Actually, the only thing I've ever had confiscated was the scissors. It had been in my backpack for three trips. Uh, I had to, I had to visit a lot of people. This was shortly after I graduated from college. It yeah. was in my it was in my backpack for three trips. And on the fourth trip is when they noticed there were giant scissors in my backpack. Of course, uh, you know I the first time I flew to Los Angeles, I was visiting some uh, extended family there, and I decided you know I'm going to treat myself. My hair is uh, kind of long, sort of out of control. I'm going to buy some overpriced designer hair gel that cost me $15. For me, that's a lot of money, um, you know, at the store. And I didn't think to uh, put it in my suitcase. I had it in my carry-on. And they said, oh, this is above, you know, six ounces or whatever. You can't carry it on a plane. And I said, but I spent $15 on this. And they said, sorry, rules the rules. So... Yeah, I'm talking about hair gel and an airport... And- but hey, thank goodness it's working. Yeah, I don't know. It's well, like, I, I guess it supplied it, a lot of jobs to people. Maybe. Not to terrorists, though. Nobody thinks about the terrorists that these regulations are putting out of work. Think about it. Very but very <laughs> I sense I may have lost some of you. But you know what? The way, honestly, the way I feel about flying, there's a fake commercial from Saturday Night Live from the, the 80s. It was around the time Mary Gross uh, was on the show. And they did this fake airline ad, and the jingle for the airline was, It's like flying in a cattle car with wings. And that's how I feel about airline travel. It is a thoroughly miserable experience. I avoid it at all costs. And if the airlines go out of business, uh, it will only be an improvement. I mean, it, it is truly one of those things where every three years they find a way to make it more inconvenient, more expensive. It's not like airlines used to have decent food, but like now, like you got to pay twenty dollars for a sandwich or whatever, and so you just buy KFC or something from the airport and take it in the plane with you. But even that's overpriced uh, compared to the rest of the market in the area. Sure, because it's an airport, and um, yeah. Even a tuna fish sandwich has to be 10 bucks. But enough about tuna fish sandwiches, hair gel, and confiscated scissors. What oh, about yeah. Die Hard 2 Die Harder? <laughs> um, oh, did you notice that the head air traffic controller, like after he would give people a lot of orders, would say like three words? What would he say? Well... The first time, you know, it's when he's giving them all these complicated orders about how they're going to keep the planes in a holding pattern. It's like, uh, stack them, rack them, and pack them. 
And then later, when they're talking about how they need to get the secondary transmitter up and running, and then need spare parts, like, do whatever you do whatever you need to do to get those parts. We got to get this transmitter up and running. Borrow, steal, kill. It, it, it's an attempt at humor. I don't know. I mean, in this movie, you also have the character of um, John Amos is Major Grant, and he's like, "Oh, I, I trained uh, Colonel Stewart and everything he knows." And the way he's dressed and the way he does those lines reminds me of. The uh, Rambo films with uh, Colonel Troutman and John uh, J. Rambo. It's a sort of similar kind of idea right there. Oh, hey, let's talk about one of the few allies that McLean has, uh, Marty the janitor. Do you find it suspicious uh, that the janitor has a complete set of blueprints and engineering diagrams for the Dulles airport? Not only that, I mean, it's all these, like, secret things, and he's like, oh, yeah, this place has been under construction, but it's not quite done. It's a perfect place to hide. Uh, you got to do it just like that. I mean, I you think he'd be one of the terrorists. Now, that'd be a weird plot twist, wouldn't it? That he was the inside man? What if he was the mastermind, the janitor? <laughs> <laughs> so instead of, having this, instead of having this, like, hardcore military Colonel Stewart going, like, Kill him, quick. He made a mistake. He's just like the crazy old janitor, sort of like Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah. He's like to be in charge of it at the I would have gotten away with it if it were for that meddling John McClane. You see, I made this fake map for you to follow, and I led you right into the terrorist trap. Oh, oh man. That would have been special. That would have been a great crazy twist. And he would have been, in my streamlined uh, pitch on this movie, he would have been like a uh, cousin of General Ramon Esperanza. <laughs> it's that's truly hideous. Oh boy. We we should write some diehard fan fiction where that's what happens. Yeah. Uh God, I don't know, yeah. There's been some diehard comic books, I understand. Huh. And um did you ever play a uh, Die Hard video game called Die Hard Trilogy? Did we talk about no, this last no, time? Uh, I'll talk about it now just to fill some time, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't mind. Uh, so it came oh, out for PlayStation 1 and I believe Dreamcast, something like that. And the idea was you could pick which movie you played as, and each movie had a different gameplay style. You Die played Hard... as the movie, you didn't play as John McClane. No, you played as the movie. It played video clips, and if you didn't push the up button quick enough, you died. No. Uh, so, I mean, it, as you played as John McClane in the different films. And the first Die Hard film had sort of a typical action where you're following behind the shoulder of John McClane as he runs around. And the second film, guess what kind of gameplay it was for the Die Hard 2 segment? Uh, run and jump platformer. It was like Virtua Cop. Huh. Like a gun shooter. Except there wasn't really much of a gun peripheral for the PlayStation. Or if there was, it wasn't out at the time the game came out. So you had to use your cheesy little cursor to try and shoot people on the screen. But, um... And it represents sort of the highlight sequences. And the uh, the one based on Die Hard 3, not that you've seen that yet, you know is based on a, sort of a crazy taxi kind of style gameplay. But... Huh. I think it's an interesting way to do a... Uh, video games based on a movie is sort of cover three movies in one game. And um, Fox did... I guess this was still Fox again. They did the same thing as well with the Alien movies. They did a game for PlayStation called Alien Trilogy. But uh, each of those was a first-person shooter. 
and they had to come up with a lot more aliens and uh, like the first uh, for Alien and Alien Three uh, portions of the game. Back to Die Hard Two, Die Harder. Um, oh, you know what I really. Something else that that if I can go back to that terrible old woman sitting next to McLean's wife on the plane, uh, why why does she have to be so cruel to Willard Scott? I, I think you know the, the attempt they're doing with Bonnie Bedelia's character, uh, both in Die Hard and a bit in this one, is saying that oh look, she's a feminist, she's a strong female character. Well, you know how we're going to show she's a strong woman? We'll have her slap a man, we'll have her punch a man, but only in an incidental scene. We're not going to have her do this in a, uh, I don't know, like a life or death. She's not going to be alongside her husband uh, and there'll be ninja kicking uh, people side by side. (laughs) Well, I was mainly talking with the woman sitting next to her referred to Willard Scott as a porker. The man was a little overweight. He's not a porker. Well, you know, in the eye of the beholder, I mean, you look at... Um... Well, she's just, the old woman is just this really terrible... You know, you know what she is? In the parlance of stompedtokyo.com, she is the odious comic relief. But you realize the whole reason they had that scene with her and the um, little electric zapper thing was kind of a take on the first film when Bruce McLean is in an airplane and you see him take out a gun out of his luggage. And he's like, I'm a cop, I've been one for 15 years. And that's kind of a surprising moment. But I mean, there's also the payoff, I guess, with the Charger at the end. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 McLean's wife does use the taser, who I guess the old old woman just gives to her. She does use it to zap uh, the reporter... When he's uh, when he's using the Sky Phone to do a live report uh, with his network, although I'm not entirely sure why she's why it's important that he not be doing this news report. Yes, it's a very self-serving report of him showing off how badass and important his reporting is, but it's not like he's actually giving the bad guys any useful information. And no, I think it's just trying to do the satisfying moment. Oh, she gets the asshole again, even though there's a restraining order. Um, yeah, which I could only mean in the because th- I've never seen the third one, but I'm guessing the third one she's in jail. Um, you know, I could tell you something, but I, I just think I won't. I'll leave it a surprise. Okay, uh, I like surprises. Uh, I'll leave it a surprise, but uh, yeah, I mean, so. Uh, I think in this movie, Robert Patrick isn't bad. He doesn't have a lot to say. You know, he's very slight of build, but he would later become famous as the T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, But he's effective. He doesn't speak a lot. He still seems menacing, but in a less over-the-top way than William Sadler. And uh, we neglected to mention William Sadler was in an earlier movie we covered on sequel cast as Death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh, that's right. Isn't that crazy? It's the same guy? Yeah, but it just shows how much range he has. Oh, certainly. Absolutely. It's uh, one of those things that, you know, you would never expect, but he he's very good at comedy in that particular part. Because he, he had a lot of bad guy parts. Because besides Die Hard 2, he um, had parts in movies like Shawshank Redemption... 
the Green Mile. I guess those are bad examples of real bad guys, exactly, but <laughs> he likes to play creepy people. I don't know, he has that look to him. I mean, so at the end of this movie, did you feel, well, that was a satisfying sequel? This was an okay sequel. You know, I expected worse. Eh. What did it, you think? It was, o- it was okay. It's I okay. just, I wanted it, I kept wanting it to end. Like, when they assaulted the church, okay, I'm ready for the climax. Didn't happen. Okay, there's a race back to the airport, and there's a s- snowmobile chase. Okay, I'm ready for it to end. But it doesn't happen. Okay, now they're at the airport, and now there's a a helicopter chase with a plane. I'm ready for it to end. Okay, now he's on the wing of the plane fighting a guy. Okay, when does this fucking end? Okay, now I'm waiting for him to light the jet fuel. When does it end? Yeah, I mean, the first one, even though the first uh, Die Hard movie kind of started a bit slower, once the action really started, it was a very good-paced film uh, after the beginning, which was a little bit pokey. But Die Hard 2... It's such long stretches between the action that I found myself getting very bored watching this at times. Uh, And I didn't think it was a terrible movie. And, you know, one thing that's uh, pretty interesting of note is Die Hard 2 worldwide made almost twice as much money as the original. But I think part part of that reason is in this time, like the late 80s, early 90s, what else was starting to become popular? VCRs. Cable television. Um, things like that. So diehard people would rent or uh, maybe even purchase if they were rich enough, you know, back when videotapes cost $100 a piece. Uh, and this is when you didn't have special features or anything, mind you, and everything was full frame, pan and scan, not uh, widescreen. You know, and um, and the video quality was kind of poor. So, with all that in mind, you know, this was... Die Hard was a movie people really could watch on video over and over and over again and build up that anticipation... Uh, with those who might not have caught it in theaters in the first time. Very true. No, I had not. I had not considered that. I was so busy thinking of like the sky phones and fax machines in this movie. I hadn't thought about home video technology and, and cable at the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, penetration for videotape was pretty good. After a while, and so was DVD. But think, why do you think it is that modern formats like Blu-ray haven't really quite taken off as well? Uh, one, Blu-ray, Blu-ray players are prohibitively expensive. Yes. Two, we've all already invested heavily uh, in DVDs, and we don't want to have to replace our sizable collections yet. Uh, and three... Some of us got burned uh, when Blu-ray hadn't won out yet, and there was that conflict between Blu-ray and HD. I think also you got to consider streaming. Mm, streaming yeah. video, like Netflix or YouTube or what have you, that's a big thing. And uh, I think it's interesting with high-definition stuff, whether it's on cable or Blu-ray. That's something I care about and enjoy a lot, but um, like my wife doesn't even notice. She claims she can't even tell the difference a lot of the times. Which I find astounding, but well, I mean, so- sometimes you do need a skilled eye. I think it's one of those things. Once you notice it, you can never not notice it. Mm, yeah, kind of like VGA and SVGA graphics. Um, yes, Remember that's an older days? that's an older example. Here's an interesting. So this movie came out in 1990, yep. and uh, in the U.S. overall, uh, 
Die Hard 2 was the number 8th grossing movie of the year. Oh. Number 7 was Total Recall. And number 9 was Dick Tracy. And the number 1 of 1990 was Home Alone. Oh, that's right. I I can't explain what madness had overtaken me, but I think I saw that three times in the theaters. Home Alone? Yep. You know, I saw Home Alone on a uh, uh, videotape. I never saw it in the theater, but I saw Home Alone 2 uh, in the theater. You know what I like to imagine? I like to imagine that uh, the Home Alone characters are on one of the planes from this movie, and that Home Alone and Die Hard take place in the same universe. Uh, I think I'd rather shoot myself before covering Home Alone on the sequel cast. Uh, uh, criticism accepted. Yeah, it's uh But no, they're not they're not all that good. There's four of them, you know. Four Home Alone movies, two of them are direct to video. Uh no, actually the third one was the third one that doesn't have any of the returning uh, uh cast members was briefly in theaters. I think it was in theaters for like a weekend and a half. Oh, okay. So, uh why don't we we should probably talk for a few more minutes about Die Hard 2, which is so difficult, too. There's not... This movie isn't a real stick-to-your-ribs movie like the original. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's... it does. Yeah, it does feel like it really kind of passes over you. And yet you watched it twice. Yeah, well, for <laughs> academic purposes. Oh, okay. This, is, this isn't about... This isn't about... This isn't about love. This is about violence. How did your uh, lady friend enjoy it? She didn't like it as much as the first one. No? No, but of course neither did I. I just felt it, I felt what it was really lacking was the heart. Hmm. You know, like, I think John McClane probably should have had something personal to work through, like he did in the first one. Not something with his wife, because that territory's already been covered, but maybe something with his in-laws or something with his children. I mean, his children are going to be two years older. And that's plenty of time for some sort of conflict or tension to arise between them. I think they really should have done something in this one where this location was a lot more confined. In airport, it just doesn't... They don't explore the possibilities. In the beginning, I think the action scene and the baggage claim, like we mentioned, is pretty good. And I would have liked more stuff like that other than, you know, grenades being thrown into an airplane or mm-hmm. ski-mobile chase or, or what have you. It just... Uh, and again, you know, this uses Christmas music a lot, like the first one. I don't think setting it in Thanksgiving would have helped it at all, either. Like, what, what do you think would have been a better or more interesting setting? Well, well, again, I think the airport and the air. I think the airport is a really good setting, but I don't think it should have strayed from that setting. Cut all ah. the business with the church. I uh, my main issue as far as the, the the setting for the film is don't set it on Christmas Eve. Yeah. If you must link it to a holiday, set it connect it to a holiday that's as far removed from Christmas Eve as possible. Hmm. And if you're married to winter time, well then why not do New Year's? You know why not why not set this on Valentine's Day or Easter or or some holiday where it's not snowing constantly. Oh, and that was another thing that bothered me. At the end of the movie, when all the planes come in, the planes are coming in one right after the other, and the runway is covered in snow. And yet that doesn't impair landing at all. 
I think they're just trying to get to a happy ending at the end. I mean, it's kind of... <sighs> Bonnie Bedelia doesn't really have a lot to do in either movie, but in the first one, you at least had some fun with the sort of sleazy relationship that the uh, bearded dude wanted to have with her, you know? Uh, and uh, there seemed to be more friction between the two. In this, it's sort of a lot softer. Oh, you know what? I would have put that bearded dude in this movie. Did he get killed I, in the first one? I don't remember. Well, yeah. Yeah, he did. Okay. But I still would have had him in this movie. You know, maybe he, <laughs> he came back from... He had a good he had insurance. He came back from the dead. He, uh, he invested in the airport and now is like part owner and didn't want McLean ruining his investment. If he was in charge of the airport security team somehow. <laughs> oh, wait, maybe it's his, his mercenary army. Oh, actually, here's a question. What do you think motivates the villains? Because I, I was very confused. You know, I think it was something where maybe he felt, um, Colonel Stewart, maybe he felt somehow betrayed by his country. Maybe, well, he, just, maybe he just sort of snapped. I mean, it, it's sort of that he has all the military training, all his, all his uh, flunkies have the military training, that he wanted to carry off the perfect plan because he knew it was a perfect general and he had all his perfect soldiers. It, he really sort of had a, a, a Superman complex, if you will. Maybe. I guess the thing that's weird is, like, is that, it, is that sometimes they're, they're clearly motivated, sometimes they're, they're obviously motivated by money, but then other times they're obviously motivated by politics. Because there's that thing where he mentions, because one of the things they mention is that the general, the United States trained and armed his army to help fight off, to help fight off Russia. But of course, like so many people, the United States government did that with, they turned on us. Uh, and then he became involved in, in, the, in the drug cartel. So at one part, they, they, you know, they're like, they're, they, he, the colonel wants to save him because he's like, considers him an ally or a friend of democracy. And on the other hand, by the end of the movie, he just wants lots of money and, and you know, an island somewhere to have a, a permanent vacation on. It, it really bothers me that I, I don't really get a chance. One of the reasons I don't really get a chance to hate the villains is that it's is that I don't know what their motivation is. Like I, I one of the reasons Hans Gruber was so menacing is I knew what motivated him. Money. Well, I'll give you I'll give you a tease for the third movie. I'm not going to spoil anything. Oh. Oh, I guess I was going to, but um, I'm just going to say you're going to like the villain in the third film. I think okay. much better than the villain in this one. Very cool. It's um. And uh, you know, of course, the sequel has uh, Samuel L. Jackson is in it. No, I like that. So, and it's directed by the director of the first film, John McTiernan. So, has a lot of things potentially in its favor. Uh, so, next week on the sequel cast, we'll be talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, but uh, before we go, um, you know, would you recommend someone take two hours out of their evening and watch Die Hard Two? I would recommend that they rewatch the original Die Hard. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think that's true. Uh, it's it's okay. It. Uh, you know, like they say, it could be worse, but it, it's just so mediocre when the first one sort of was firing at all cylinders at almost all times. Oh, that's another missed opportunity. Y y you know, uh, uh, Carl, uh, was it Carlisle or Argyle from the first film? It's Argyle, Argyle, right? Yeah, Argyle, the limo yeah, guy. I wanted him back, but like... Again, in my mind, Argyle is a young man who's moving up in the world, you know, from cab driver to limo driver. Why not from limo driver to airline pilot? That would have been a kind of that could have been fun for a scene or two. Yeah, and again, give him a chance to be to be a little bit of a hero. 
you know. Again, yeah, like, like maybe, like maybe you know, you'd have uh, John McClane tunes in to try and communicate with the airplane with his wife on it, and he hears Christmas and Hollis again. <laughs> and uh, because he never hears that kind of music, he thinks Argyle. Then that's Captain Argyle, motherfucker. <laughs> why, why would do that? <laughs> I don't know. Why, why would he start swearing, Matt? <laughs> I guess because it's as cliche as possible. It's a sassy, young, black character. And I guess I'm thinking more of a Chris Tucker kind of role. Yeah, if they do a remake, uh, Chris Tucker will play the Argyle part. But he will follow McClane into the building. And if, if they remake Die Hard, it would be Jason people. Statham as John McClane. <laughs> Chris Tucker as Argyle. And, um, oh, geez. The Rock as, as, as Al Powell. <laughs> Yeah, The Rock could be Al Pal, and um, as uh, Hans Gruber, you'd have... Oh, Alan Rickman Jr. No. Um, I'd like to see Malcolm McDowell do Alan Rickman. Oh. Or play that. Or, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I could see that. But anyway. Yeah, you know we reviewed a not-that-good movie when we're casting the remake of the movie by the end of the show. When we, you know, when it's, I think it's a rule of thumb on the sequel cast. When we talk about scissors on airplanes and hair gel and uh, and airline meal quality, that we're not talking about a quality film. Uh, so uh, send us an email, sequelcast at gmail.com. Uh, visit us at sequelcast.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at sequelcast. Or, um, you know, go to Facebook and uh, look us up, search for sequelcast. I think I said that twice already. <laughs> uh, this is Matt. Uh, and the Rasher. Uh, until next time, same. This is Buckwheat. The clubhouse is open. Oh, yeah, that was a strange reference. Yeah, okay. for, for, yeah for whatever reason, they started the movie using Little Rascal references in their code words, and then ended the movie with them using, like, bird references in their code words. Yeah. But I got a real kick out of This is Buckwheat. The barn doors. So if he's Buckwheat, who was Spanky? Um, I think John Leguizamo was Spanky. He's the little. He's a <laughs> no, little he's Alpha. One. Oh, with the hair, I, I could be. Good night.